You're listening to KZOM, Oleander Public Radio. Hey everyone, it's me, DB. It is December, and it's, uh, spooky Halloween. No, no, spooky Christmas. That's, that's the right one. I think, I think it's spooky Christmas. I'm not sure what's going on in town yet. I haven't seen Dave for a little bit, so, uh, after I find out where Dave is, we'll find out what's going on around town. So, happy December. Rate, review, subscribe. Tell people about us and uh, ask us questions. Send us mail. Uh, just follow the show notes and uh, we'll talk to you then. Thank you so much. Oh, yeah, by the way, Henry Kuttner stories. Five of them. Four of them? A couple of them. Here we go. Reading by Greg Marguerite. Part two of The Ego Machine by Henry Kuttner. Chapter 3 When the robot walked into Martin's office that evening, he, or it, went directly to the desk, unscrewed the bulb from the lamp, pressed the switch, and stuck his finger into the socket. There was a crackling flash. ENIAC withdrew his finger and shook his metallic head violently. I needed that, he sighed. I've been on the go all day by the Caldecoot's time scale. Paleolithic, Neolithic, Technological, I, I don't even know what time it is. Well, how's your ecological adjustment getting on? Martin rubbed his chin thoughtfully. Badly, he said. Tell me, did Disraeli as Prime Minister ever have any dealings with a country called Mixolydia? I have no idea, said the robot. Why do you ask? Because my environment hauled back and took a poke at my jaw, Martin said shortly. Then you provoked it. ENIAC countered. A crisis, a situation of stress, always brings a man's dominant trait to the fore, and Disraeli was dominantly courageous. Under stress, his courage became insolence, but he was intelligent enough to arrange his environment so insolence would be countered on the semantic level. Mixolydia, eh? I place it vaguely some billions of years ago when it was inhabited by giant white apes, or, oh, now I remember. It's an insisted medieval survival, isn't it? Martin nodded. So is this movie studio, the robot said. Your trouble is that you've run up against somebody who's got a better optimum ecological adjustment than you have. That's it. This studio environment is just emerging from medievalism, so it can easily slip back into that plenum when an optimum medievalist exerts pressure. Such types cause the Dark Ages. Well, you'd better change your environment to a neo-technological one, where the Disraeli Matrix can be successfully pro-survival. In your era, only a few archaic social insistments like this studio are feudalistic. So go somewhere else. It takes a feudalist to match a feudalist. But I can't go somewhere else, Martin complained. Not without my contract release. I was supposed to pick it up tonight, but St. Cyr found out what was happening, and he'll throw a monkey wrench in the works if he has to knock me out again to do it. I'm due at Watt's place now, but St. Cyr's already there. Spare me the trivia, the robot said, raising his hand. As for this 
St. Cyr, if he's a medieval character type, obviously he'll knuckle under only to a stronger man of his own kind. How would Disraeli have handled this? Martin demanded. Disraeli would never have got into such a situation in the first place, the robot said unhelpfully. The Echolegizer can give you the ideal ecological differential, but only for your own type, because otherwise it wouldn't be your optimum. Disraeli would have been a failure in Russia in Ivan's time. Would you mind clarifying that? Martin asked thoughtfully. Certainly, the robot said with great rapidity. It all depends on the threshold response time of the memory circuits in the brain. If you assume the identity of the basic chromosome pattern, the strength of neuronic activation varies in inverse proportion to the quantitative memory factor. Only actual experience could give you Disraeli's memories. But your reactivity thresholds have been altered until perception and emotional indices approximate the Disraeli ratio. Oh, Martin said. But how would you say, assert yourself against a medieval steam shovel? By plugging my demountable brain into a larger steam shovel, ENIAC told him. Martin seemed pensive. His hand rose, adjusting an invisible monocle, while a look of perceptive imagination suddenly crossed his face. You mentioned Russia in Ivan's time, he said. Which Ivan would that be? Not by any chance... Ivan the Fourth. Very well adjusted to his environment, he was, too. However, enough of this chit-chat. Obviously, you'll be one of the failures in our experiment, but our aim is to strike an average. So if you'll put the ecologizer on your... That was Ivan the Terrible, wasn't it? Martin interrupted. Look here, could you impress the character matrix of Ivan the Terrible on my brain? That wouldn't help you a bit, the robot said. Besides, it's not the purpose of the experiment. Now, one moment. Disraeli can't cope with a medievalist like St. Cyr on his own level, but if I had Ivan the Terrible's reactive thresholds, I'll bet I could throw a bluff that might do the trick. Even though St. Cyr's bigger than I am, he's got a veneer of civilization. Now wait. He trades on that. He's always dealt with people who are too civilized to use his own methods. The trick would be to call his bluff, and Ivan's the man who could do it. But you, you don't understand. Didn't everybody in Russia tremble with fear at Ivan's name? Yes, in— Very well, then, Martin said triumphantly. You're going to impress the character matrix of Ivan the Terrible on my mind, and then I'm going to put the bite on St. Cyr, the way Ivan would have done it. Disraeli's simply too civilized. Size is a factor, but character's more important. I don't look like Disraeli, but people have been reacting to me as though I were George Arliss down to the spit curl. A good big man can always lick a good little man. But St. Cyr's never been up against a really uncivilized little man. One who'd gladly rip out an enemy's heart with his bare hands. Martin nodded briskly. St. Cyr will back down. I've found that out. But it would take somebody like Ivan to make him stay all the way down. If you think I'm going to impress Ivan's matrix on you, you're wrong, the robot said. You couldn't be talked into it? I, said ENIAC, am a robot, semantically adjusted. Of course you couldn't talk me into it. Perhaps not, Martin reflected. But Disraeli, hmm, man is a machine. Why? 
Disraeli was the one person in the world ideally fitted for robot coercion. To him, men were machines. And what was ENIAC? Let's talk this over, Martin began absently, pushing the desk lamp toward the robot. And then the golden tongue that had swayed empires was loosed. You're not going to like this, the robot said dazedly, sometime later. Ivan won't do at... Oh, you've got me all confused. You'll have to eye-print a... He began to pull out of his sack the helmet and the quarter-mile of red ribbon. To tie up my bonny gray brain, Martin said, drunk with his own rhetoric. Put it on my head. That's right. Ivan the Terrible. Remember, I'll fix St. Cyr's Mixolydian wagon. Differential depends on environment as much as on heredity, the robot muttered, clapping the helmet on Martin's head. Though, naturally, Ivan wouldn't have had the Zardom environment without his particular heredity, involving Helena Glinska there. He removed the helmet. But nothing's happening, Martin said. I, I don't feel any different. It'll take a few moments. This isn't your basic character pattern, remember, as Disraeli's was. Enjoy yourself while you can. You'll get the Ivan effect soon enough. He shouldered the sack and headed uncertainly for the door. Wait, Martin said uneasily. Are you sure? Be quiet. I forgot something. Some formality. Now I'm all confused. Well, I'll think of it later, or earlier, as the case may be. I'll, I'll see you in twelve hours, I hope. The robot departed. Martin shook his head tentatively from side to side. Then he got up and followed ENIAC to the door, but there was no sign of the robot except for a diminishing whirlwind of dust in the middle of the corridor. Something began to happen in Martin's brain. Behind him the telephone rang. Martin heard himself grasp with pure terror. With a sudden, impossible, terrifying, absolute certainty, he knew who was telephoning. Assassins! Yes, Mr. Martin, said Tolliver Watt's butler to the telephone. Miss Ashby is here. She is with Mr. Watt and Mr. St. Cyr at the moment, but I will give her your message. You are detained, and she is to call for you where? The broom closet on the second floor of the writer's building, Martin said in a quavering voice. It's the only one near a telephone with a long enough cord so I could take the phone in here with me, but I'm not at all certain that I'm safe. I don't like the looks of that broom on my left. Sir? Are you sure you're Tolliver Watts' butler? Martin demanded nervously. Quite sure, Mr. Uh, Mr. Martin. I am Mr. Martin, cried Martin with terrified defiance. By all the laws of God and man, Mr. Martin I am, and Mr. Martin I will remain, in spite of all attempts by rebellious dogs to depose me from my rightful place. Yes, sir. The broom closet, you say, sir? The broom closet, immediately. But swear not to tell another soul, no matter how much you're threatened. I'll protect you. Very well, sir. Is that all? Yes. Tell Miss Ashby to hurry. Hang up now. The line may be tapped. I have enemies. There was a click. Martin replaced his own receiver and furtively surveyed the broom closet. He told himself that this was ridiculous. There was nothing to be afraid of, was there? True, the broom closet's narrow walls were closing in upon him alarmingly while the ceiling descended. Panic-stricken, Martin emerged from the closet, took a long breath, and threw back his shoulders. 
Not a thing to be afraid of, he said. Who's afraid? Whistling, he began to stroll down the hall toward the staircase, but midway agoraphobia overcame him and his nerve broke. He ducked into his own office and sweated quietly in the dark until he had mustered up enough courage to turn on a lamp. The Encyclopedia Britannica in its glass-fronted cabinet caught his eye. With noiseless haste Martin secured Italy to Lourdes and opened the volume at his desk. Something obviously was very, very wrong. The robot had said that Martin wasn't going to like being Ivan the Terrible, come to think of it. But was Martin wearing Ivan's character matrix? Perhaps he'd got somebody else's matrix by mistake, that of some arrant coward, or maybe the mad czar of Russia had really been called Ivan the Terrified. Martin flipped the rustling pages nervously. Ivan, Ivan, here it was. Son of Helena Glinska, married Anastasia Zakharina Kushkina, private life unspeakably abominable. Memory astonishing, energy indefatigable, ungovernable fury, great natural ability, political foresight, anticipated the ideals of Peter the Great. Martin shook his head. Then he caught his breath at the next line. Ivan had lived in an atmosphere of apprehension, imagining that every man's hand was against him. Just like me, Martin murmured. But, but there was more to Ivan than just cowardice. I, I don't understand. Differential, the robot had said, depends on environment as much as on heredity, though naturally Ivan wouldn't have had the Tsardom environment without his particular heredity. Martin sucked in his breath sharply. Environment does make a difference. No doubt Ivan the Fourth had been a fearful coward, but heredity plus environment had given Ivan the one great weapon that had enabled him to keep his cowardice a recessive trait. Ivan the Terrible had been Tsar of all the Russias. Give a coward a gun, and while he doesn't stop being a coward, it won't show in the same way. He may act like a violent, aggressive tyrant instead. That, of course, was why Ivan had been ecologically successful in his specialized environment. He'd never run up against many stresses that brought his dominant trait to the fore. Like Disraeli, he had been able to control his environment so that such stresses were practically eliminated. Martin turned green. Then he remembered Erika. Could he get Erika to keep St. Cyr busy somehow while he got his contract release from Watt? As long as he could avoid crises, he could keep his nerve from crumbling, but there were assassins everywhere. Erika was on her way to the lot by now. Martin swallowed. He would meet her outside the studio. The broom closet wasn't safe. He could be trapped there, like a rat. Nonsense, Martin told himself with shivering firmness. This isn't me. All I have to do is get a grip on m myself. Come now. Buck up. Toujours la das. But he went out of his office and downstairs very softly and cautiously. After all, one never knew. And when every man's hand was against one. Quaking, the character matrix of Ivan the Terrible stole toward a studio gate. The taxi drove rapidly toward Bel Air. But what were you doing up that tree? Erica demanded. Martin shook violently. A werewolf, he chattered, and a vampire, and a ghoul, and I saw them, I tell you. There I was at the studio gate, and they all came at me in a mob. 
They were just coming back from dinner, Erika said. You know Summit's doing a night shooting on Abbott and Costello meet everybody. Karloff wouldn't hurt a fly. I keep telling myself that, Martin said dully. But I was out of my mind with guilt and fear. You see, I'm an abominable monster. But it's not my fault. It's environmental. I grew up in a brutal and degrading condition. Oh, oh look! He pointed toward a traffic cop ahead. The police. Traitors. Even in the palace guards. Lady, is that guy nuts? The cabbie demanded. Mad or sane, I am Nicholas Martin, Martin announced with an abrupt volte face. He tried to stand up commandingly, bumping his head, screamed, Assassins! and burrowed into a corner of the seat, panting horribly. Erica gave him a thoughtful, worried look. Nick, she said, how much have you had to drink? What's wrong? Martin shut his eyes and lay back against the cushions. Let me have a few minutes, Erica, he pleaded. I'll be all right as soon as I recover from stress. It's only when I'm under stress that Ivan— You can accept your contract release from what, can't you? Surely you'll be able to manage that. Of course, Martin said with feeble bravery. He thought it over and reconsidered. If I can hold your hand, he suggested, taking no chances. This disgusted Erica so much that for two miles there was no more conversation within the cab. Erica had been thinking her own thoughts. You've certainly changed since this morning, she observed, threatening to make love to me of all things, as if I'd stand for it. I'd like to see you try. There was a pause. Erica slid her eyes sideways toward Martin. I said I'd like to see you try, she repeated. Oh, you would, would you? Martin said with hollow valor. He paused. Oddly enough, his tongue, hitherto frozen stiff on one particular subject in Erica's presence, was now thoroughly loosened. Martin wasted no time on theory. Seizing his chance before a new stress might unexpectedly arise, he instantly poured out his heart to Erica, who visibly softened. But why didn't you ever say so before? she asked. I can't imagine, Martin said. Then you'll marry me? But why were you acting so... Will you marry me? Yes, Erica said, and there was a pause. Martin moistened his lips, discovering that somehow he and Erica had moved close together. He was about to seal the bargain in the customary manner when a sudden thought struck him and made him draw back with a little start. Erica opened her eyes. Uh said Martin. Um, I just happened to remember. Uh, there's a bad flu epidemic in Chicago. Epidemics spread like wildfire, you know. Why, it could be in Hollywood by now, especially with the prevailing westerly winds. I'm damned if I'm going to be proposed to and not kissed, Erica said in a somewhat irritated tone. You kiss me. But I might give you the bubonic plague, Martin said nervously. Kissing spreads germs. It's a well-known fact. Nick. Well, I don't know. When did you last have a cold? Erica pulled away from him and went to sit in the other corner. Uh, Martin said after a long silence. Erica? Don't talk to me, you miserable man, Erica said. You monster, you. I can't help it, 
Martin cried wildly. I'll be a coward for twelve hours. It's not my fault. After eight tomorrow morning, I'll... I'll walk into a lion cage if you want, but tonight I'm as yellow as Ivan the Terrible. At least let me tell you what's been happening." Erika said nothing. Martin instantly plunged into his long and improbable tale. "'I don't believe a word of it,' Erika said when he had finished. She shook her head sharply. "'Just the same, I'm still your agent, and your career's still my responsibility. The first and only thing we have to do is get your contract released from Tolliver Watt, and that's all we're going to consider right now. Do you hear?" But St. Cyr— I'll do all the talking. You won't have to say a word. If St. Cyr tries to bully you, I'll handle him. But you've got to be there with me, or St. Cyr will make that an excuse to postpone things again. I know him. Now I'm under stress again, Martin said wildly. I can't stand it. I I'm not the Tsar of Russia." "'Lady,' said the cab-driver, looking back, "'if I was you, I'd sure as hell break off that engagement.' "'Heads will roll for this,' Martin said ominously. "'By mutual consent, agree to terminate. Yes,' Watt said, affixing his name to the legal paper that lay before him on the desk. "'That does it. But where in the world is that fellow Martin? He came in with you, I'm certain." "'Did he?' Erika asked rather wildly. She, too, was wondering how Martin had managed to vanish so miraculously from her side. Perhaps he had crept with lightning rapidity under the carpet. She forced her mind from the thought and reached for the contract release Watt was folding. "'Wait,' St. Cyr said, his lower lip jutting. What about a clause giving us an option on Martin's next play?" Watt paused, and the director instantly struck home. "'Whatever it may be, I can turn it into a vehicle for Dee Dee. Hey, Dee Dee?' He lifted a sausage finger at the lovely star, who nodded obediently. "'It's going to have an all-male cast,' Erika said hastily, "'and we're discussing contract releases, not options.' "'He would give me an option if I had him here,' St. Cyr growled torturing his cigar horribly. Why does everything conspire against an artist? He waved a vast hairy fist in the air. Now I must break in a new writer, which is a great waste. Within a fortnight Martin would have been a St. Cyr writer. In fact, it is still possible." I'm afraid not, Raoul, Watt said resignedly. You really shouldn't have hit Martin at the studio today. He would not dare charge me with assault. In Mixolydia. Why, hello, Nick, Dee Dee said with a bright smile. Why are you hiding behind those curtains? Every eye was turned toward the window draperies, just in time to see the white, terrified face of Nicholas Martin flip out of sight like a scared chipmunk's. Erica, her heart dropping, said hastily, Oh, that isn't Nick. It doesn't look like him a bit. You made a mistake, Dee Dee. Did I? Dee Dee asked, perfectly willing to agree. Certainly, Erika said, reaching for the contract release in Watt's hand. Now, if you'll just let me have this, I'll— Stop! cried St. Cyr in a bull's bellow. Head sunk between his heavy shoulders. He lumbered to the window and jerked the curtains aside. Ha! the director said in a sinister voice. Martin! It's a lie! Martin said feebly, making a desperate attempt to conceal his stress-triggered panic. I've abdicated. St. Cyr, who had stepped back a pace, was studying Martin carefully. 
Slowly the cigar in his mouth began to tilt upwards. An unpleasant grin widened the director's mouth. He shook a finger under Martin's quivering nostrils. You, he said. Tonight it is a different tune, eh? Today you were drunk. Now I see it all. Valorous with pots, like they say. Nonsense, Martin said, rallying his courage by a glance at Erica. Who say? Nobody but you would say a thing like that. Now, what's this all about? What were you doing behind that curtain? Watt asked. I wasn't behind the curtain, Martin said with great bravado. You were, all of you. I was in front of the curtain. Can I help it if the whole lot of you conceal yourselves behind curtains in a library like, like conspirators? The word was unfortunately chosen. A panicky light flashed into Martin's eyes. Yes, conspirators, he went on nervously. You think I don't know, eh? Well, I do. You're all assassins plotting and planning. So this is your headquarters, is it? All night your hired dogs have been at my heels, driving me like a wounded caribou to— We've got to be going, Erica said desperately. There's just time to catch the next carib—the next plane east. She reached for the contract release, but Watt suddenly put it in his pocket. He turned his chair toward Martin. Will you give us an option on your next play? he demanded. Of course he will give us an option, St. Cyr said, studying Martin's air of bravado with an experienced eye. Also, there is to be no question of a charge of assault, for if there is, I will beat you. So it is in Mixolydia. In fact, you do not even want a release from your contract, Martin. It's all a mistake. I will turn you into a St. Cyr writer, and all will be well. So, now you will ask Tolliver to tear up that release, will you not? Ha! Of course you won't, Nick, Erica cried. Say so. There was a pregnant silence. Watt watched with sharp interest. So did the unhappy Erica, torn between her responsibility as Martin's agent and her disgust at the man's abject cowardice. Dee Dee watched, too, her eyes very wide and a cheerful smile upon her handsome face. But the battle was obviously between Martin and Raoul St. Cyr. Martin drew himself up desperately. Now or never he must force himself to be truly terrible. Already he had a troubled expression, just like Ivan. He strove to look sinister, too. An enigmatic smile played around his lips. For an instant he resembled the mad Tsar of Russia, except, of course, that he was clean-shaven. With contemptuous regal power, Martin stared down the Mixolydian. You will tear up that release and sign an agreement giving us option on your next play, too, huh? St. Cyr said, but a trifle uncertainly. I'll do as I please, Martin told him. How would you like to be eaten alive by dogs? I don't know, Raoul, Watt said. Let's try to get this settled, even if— Do you want me to go over to Metro and take Dee Dee with me? St. Cyr cried, turning toward Watt. He will sign. And reaching into an inner pocket for a pen, the burly director swung back toward Martin. Assassin! cried Martin, misinterpreting the gesture. A gloating smile appeared on St. Cyr's revolting features. Now we have him, Tolliver, he said with heavy triumph, and these ominous words added the final stress to Martin's overwhelming burden. With a mad cry he rushed past St. Cyr, wrenched open a door, and fled. 
From behind him came Erika Valkyrie's voice. Leave him alone. Haven't you done enough already? Now I'm going to get that contract release from you before I leave this room, Tolliver Watt. And I warn you, St. Cyr, if you— But by then Martin was five rooms away, and the voice faded. He darted on, hopelessly trying to make himself slow down and return to the scene of battle. The pressure was too strong. Terror hurled him down a corridor, into another room, and against a metallic object from which he rebounded to find himself sitting on the floor, looking up at ENIAC Gamma the Ninety-Third. "'Ah, there you are,' the robot said. I've been searching all over space-time for you. You forgot to give me a waiver of responsibility when you talked me into varying the experiment. The authorities would be in my gears if I didn't bring back an eye-printed waiver when a subject scratched by variance." With a frightened glance behind him, Martin rose to his feet. "'What?' he asked confusedly. "'Listen, you've got to change me back to myself. Everyone's trying to kill me. You're just in time. I can't wait twelve hours. Change me back to myself. Quick!' "'Oh, I'm through with you,' the robot said callously. You're no longer a suitably unconditioned subject after that last treatment you insisted on. I should have got the waiver from you then, but you got me all confused with Disraeli's oratory. Now, here, just hold this up to your left eye for twenty seconds." He extended a flat, glittering little metal disc. It's already sensitized and filled out. It only needs your eye print. Affix it, and you'll never see me again. Martin shrank away. But. What's going to happen to me?" he quavered, swallowing. How should I know? After twelve hours the treatment will wear off, and you'll be yourself again. Hold this up to your eye now." I will, if you'll change me back to myself, Martin haggled. I can't. It's against the rules. One variance is bad enough, even with a filed waiver, but two? Oh, no. Hold this up to your left eye. No. Martin said with feeble firmness, I won't. ENIAC studied him. Yes, you will, the robot said finally, or I'll go boo at you. Martin paled slightly, but he shook his head in desperate determination. No, he said doggedly, unless I get rid of Ivan's matrix right now, Erica will never marry me and I'll never get my contract release from Watt. All you have to do is put that helmet on my head and change me back to myself. Is that too much to ask?" Certainly, of a robot, ENIAC said stiffly. No more shilly-shallying. It's lucky you're wearing the Ivan Matrix so I can impose my will on you. Put your eye-print on this instantly. Martin rushed behind the couch and hid. The robot advanced menacingly, and at that moment pushed to the last ditch, Martin suddenly remembered something. He faced the robot. Wait, he said. You don't understand. I can't eye-print that thing. It won't work on me. Don't you realize that? It's supposed to take the eye-print. Of the rod and cone pattern of the retina, the robot said. So, so how can I do that unless I can keep my eye open for twenty seconds? My perceptive reaction thresholds are Ivan's, aren't they? I can't control the reflex of blinking. I've got a coward's synapses. And they'd force me to shut my eyes tight the second that gimmick got too close to them." "'Hold them open,' the robot suggested. "'With your fingers.' "'My fingers have reflexes, too,' Martin argued, moving toward a sideboard. "'There's only one answer. I've got to get drunk. 
If I'm half-stupefied with liquor, my reflexes will be slow. I won't be able to shut my eyes. And don't try to use force, either. If I dropped dead with fear, how would you get my eye-print then?" Very easily, the robot said. I'd pry open your lids. Martin hastily reached for a bottle on the sideboard and a glass, but his hand swerved aside and gripped instead a siphon of soda water. Only, ENIAC went on, the forgery might be detected. Martin fizzled the glass full of soda and took a long drink. I won't be long getting drunk, he said, his voice thickening. In fact, it's beginning to work already. See, I'm cooperating. The robot hesitated. Well, hurry up about it, he said, and sat down. Martin, about to take another drink, suddenly paused, staring at ENIAC. Then, with a sharply indrawn breath, he lowered the glass. "'What's the matter now?' the robot asked. "'Drink your—what is it?' "'It's whiskey,' Martin told the inexperienced automaton. "'But now I see it all. You've put poison in it. So that's your plan, is it? Well, I won't touch another drop, and now you'll never get my eye-print. I'm no fool.' "'Cog almighty,' the robot said, rising. You poured that drink yourself. How could I have poisoned it? Drink!" I won't, Martin said with a coward's stubbornness, fighting back the growing suspicion that the drink might really be toxic. You swallow that drink, ENIAC commanded, his voice beginning to quiver slightly. It's perfectly harmless. Then prove it, Martin said cunningly. Would you be willing to switch glasses? Would you drink this poisoned brew yourself? How do you expect me to drink? the robot demanded. I... he paused. All right. Hand me the glass, he said. I'll take a sip. Then you've got to drink the rest of it. Aha! Martin said. You betrayed yourself that time. You're a robot. You can't drink, remember? Not the same way that I can, anyhow. Now I've got you trapped, you assassin. There's your brew. He pointed to a floor lamp. Do you dare drink with me now, in your electrical fashion, or do you admit that you're trying to poison me? Wait a minute. What am I saying? That wouldn't prove a— Of course it would, the robot said hastily. You're perfectly right, and it's very cunning of you. We'll drink together, and that will prove your whiskey's harmless, so you'll keep on drinking till your reflexes slow down. See? Well— Martin began uncertainly, but the unscrupulous robot unscrewed a bulb from the floor lamp, pulled the switch, and inserted his finger into the empty socket, which caused a crackling flash. There, the robot said. It isn't poisoned. See? You're not swallowing it, Martin said suspiciously. You're holding it in your mouth. I mean, your finger. ENIAC again probed the socket. Well, all right, perhaps. Martin said in a doubtful fashion. But I'm not going to risk your slipping a powder in my liquor, you traitor. You're going to keep up with me, drink for drink, until I can eye-print that gimmick of yours, or else I stop drinking. But does sticking your finger in that lamp really prove my liquor isn't poisoned? I can't quite— Of course it does, the robot said quickly. I'll prove it. I'll do it again. Powerful D.C., isn't it? Certainly it proves it. Keep drinking now." His gaze watchfully on the robot, Martin lifted his glass of club soda. 
cried the robot some time later, sketching a singularly loose smile on its metallic face. Best fermented mammoth's milk I ever tasted, Martin agreed, lifting his tenth glass of soda water. He felt slightly queasy and wondered if he might be drowning. Mammoth's milk? asked ENIAC thickly. What year is this? Martin drew a long breath. Ivan's capacious memory had served him very well so far. Voltage, he recalled, increased the frequency of the robot's thought patterns and disorganized ENIAC's memory, which was being proved before his eyes. But the crux of his plan was yet to come. The year of the great hairy one, of course, Martin said briskly. Don't you remember? Then you, ENIAC strove to focus upon his drinking companion, you must be the mammoth slayer. That's it, Martin cried. Have another jolt. What about giving me the treatment now? What treatment? Martin looked impatient. You said you were going to impose the character matrix of Mammoth Slayer on my mind. You said that would ensure my optimum ecological adjustment in this temporal phase, and nothing else would. Did I? But you're not Mammoth Slayer, ENIAC said confusedly. Mammoth Slayer was the son of the Great Hairy One. What's your mother's name? The Great Hairy One, Martin replied, at which the robot grated its hand across its gleaming forehead. Have one more jolt, Martin suggested. Like this? ENIAC asked, obeying. I keep feeling I've forgotten something important. <sniffs> Martin adjusted the crystal helmet on his skull. Now, he commanded, give me the character matrix of Mammoth Slayer, son of the Great Hairy One. Well, all right, ENIAC said dizzily. The red ribbons swirled. There was a flash from the helmet. There the robot said. It's done. It may take a few minutes to begin functioning, but then for twelve hours you'll... Wait, where are you going? But Martin had already departed. The robot stuffed the helmet and the quarter-mile of red ribbon back for the last time. He lurched to the floor lamp, muttering something about one for the road. Afterward the room lay empty. A fading murmur said, Nick! Erika gasped, staring at the figure in the doorway. Don't stand like that. You frighten me. Everyone in the room looked up abruptly at her cry, and so were just in time to see a horrifying change take place in Martin's shape. It was an illusion, of course, but an alarming one. His knees slowly bent until he was half crouching, his shoulders slumped as though bowed by the weight of enormous back and shoulder muscles and his arms swung forward until their knuckles hung perilously near the floor. Nicholas Martin had at last achieved a personality whose ecological norm would put him on a level with Raoul St. Cyr. Nick! Erica quavered. Slowly Martin's jaw protruded till his lower teeth were hideously visible. Gradually his eyelids dropped until he was peering up out of tiny, wicked sockets. Then, slowly, a perfectly shocking grin broadened Mr. Martin's mouth. Erica, he said throatily, mine. And with that he shambled forward, seized the horrified girl in his arms, and bit her on the ear. Oh, Nick, Erica murmured, closing her eyes. Why didn't you ever— No, 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 Nick, stop it. The contract release. We've got to— Nick, what are you doing? 
She snatched at Martin's departing form, but too late. For all his ungainly and unpleasant gait, Martin covered the ground fast. Almost instantly he was clamoring over Watt's desk as the most direct route to that startled tycoon. DeeDee looked on a little surprised. St. Cyr lunged forward. In Mixolydia, he began. Ha! So! He picked up Martin and threw him across the room. Oh, you beast! Erica cried and flung herself upon the director, beating at his brawny chest. On second thought, she used her shoes on his shins with more effect. St. Cyr, no gentleman, turned her around, pinioned her arms behind her, and glanced up at Watt's alarmed cry. Martin, what are you doing? There was reason for the inquiry. Apparently unhurt by St. Cyr's toss, Martin had hit the floor, rolled over and over like a ball, knocked down a floor lamp with a crash, and uncurled with an unpleasant expression on his face. He rose, crouching, bandy-legged, his arms swinging low, a snarl curling his lips. You take my mate! The pithic-anthropic Mr. Martin inquired throatily, rapidly losing all touch with the twentieth century. It was a rhetorical question. He picked up the lampstand. He did not have to bend to do it. Tore off the silk shade as he would have peeled foliage from a tree limb and balanced the weapon in his hand. Then he moved forward, carrying the lamp standard like a spear. I, said Martin, kill. Then he endeavored with the most admirable single-heartedness to carry out his expressed intention. The first thrust of the blunt, improvised spear rammed into St. Cyr's solar plexus and drove him back against the wall with a booming thud. This seemed to be what Martin wanted. Keeping one end of his spear pressed into the director's belly, he crouched lower, dug his toes into the rug, and did his very best to drill a hole in St. Cyr. Stop it! cried Watt, flinging himself into the conflict. Ancient reflexes took over. Martin's arm shot out. Watt shot off in the opposite direction. The lamp broke. Martin looked pensively at the pieces, tentatively began to bite one, changed his mind, and looked at St. Cyr instead. The gasping director, mouthing threats, curses, and objections, drew himself up and shook a huge fist at Martin. I, he announced, shall kill you with my bare hands. Then I go over to MGM with Deedee. Dee. In Mixolydia, Martin lifted his own fists towards his face. He regarded them. He unclenched them slowly, while a terrible grin spread across his face. And then, with every tooth showing and with the hungry gleam of a mad tiger in his tiny little eyes, he lifted his gaze to St. Cyr's throat. Mammoth Slayer was not the son of the great hairy one for nothing. Martin sprang. So did St. Cyr, in another direction screaming with sudden terror. For, after all, he was only a medievalist. The feudal man is far more civilized than the so-called man of Mammoth Slayer's primordially direct era. And as a man recoils from a small but murderous wildcat, so St. Cyr fled in sudden civilized horror from an attacker who was literally afraid of nothing. He sprang through the window and shrieking vanished into the night. Martin was taken by surprise. When Mammoth Slayer leaped at an enemy, the enemy leaped at him, too. 
and so Martin's head slammed against the wall with disconcerting force. Dimly he heard diminishing, terrified cries. Laboriously he crawled to his feet and set back against the wall, snarling. Quite ready. Nick! Erika's voice called. Nick, it's me! Stop it! Stop it! Dee Dee! Hmm! Martin said thickly, shaking his head. Kill! He growled softly, blinking through red-rimmed little eyes at the scene around him. It swam back slowly into focus. Erika was struggling with Dee Dee near the window. You let me go! Dee Dee cried. Where Raoul goes, I go! Dee Dee! pleaded a new voice. Martin glanced aside to see Tolliver Watt crumpled in a corner, a crushed lampshade half obscuring his face. With a violent effort, Martin straightened up. Walking upright seemed unnatural somehow, but it helped submerge Mammoth Slayer's worst instincts. Besides, with St. Cyr gone, stresses were slowly subsiding so that Mammoth Slayer's dominant trait was receding from the active foreground. Martin tested his tongue cautiously, relieved to find he was still capable of human speech. Uh, he said. Uh, what? Watt blinked at him anxiously through the lampshade. Release, Martin said with a violent effort. Contract release. Gimme. Watt had courage. He crawled to his feet, removing the lampshade. Contract release, he snapped. You madman, don't you realize what you've done? Dee Dee's walking out on me. Dee Dee, don't go. We will bring Raoul back. Raoul told me to quit if he quit. Dee Dee said stubbornly. You don't have to do what St. Cyr tells you, Erica said, hanging on to the struggling star. Don't I? Dee Dee asked, astonished. Yes, I do. I always have. Dee Dee, Watt said frantically, I'll give you the finest contract on earth, a ten-year contract. Look, here it is. He tore out a well-creased document. All you have to do is sign and you can have anything you want. Wouldn't you like that? Oh, yes, Dee Dee said, but Raoul wouldn't like it. She broke free from Erica. Martin, Watt told the playwright frantically, get St. Cyr back. Apologize to him. I don't care how, but get him back. If you don't, I, I'll never give you your release. Martin was observed to slump slightly, perhaps with hopelessness. Then again, perhaps not. I'm sorry. Dee Dee said. I liked working for you, Tolliver, but I have to do what Raoul says, of course. And she moved toward the window. Martin had slumped further down till his knuckles quite brushed the rug. His angry little eyes, glowing with baffled rage, were fixed on Dee Dee. Slowly his lips peeled back, exposing every tooth in his head. You, he said in an ominous growl. Dee Dee paused, but only briefly. Then the enraged roar of a wild beast reverberated through the room. "'You come back!' bellowed the infuriated Mammoth Slayer, and with one agile bound sprang to the window, seized Dee Dee, and slung her under one arm. Wheeling, he glared jealously at the shrinking Watt and reached for Erica. In a trice he had the struggling forms of both girls captive, one under each arm. His wicked little eyes glanced from one to the other. Then, playing no favorites, he bit each quickly on the ear. Nick, Erica cried, how dare you? Mine, Mammoth Slayer informed her hoarsely. You bet I am, 
Erika said. But that works both ways. Put down that hussy you've got under your other arm. Mammoth Slayer was observed to eye Deedee doubtfully. Well, Erika said tartly, make up your mind. Both, said the uncivilized playwright. Yes. No, Erika said. Yes. Deedee breathed an entirely new tone. Limp as a dishrag, the lovely creature hung from Martin's arm and gazed up at her captor with idolatrous admiration. Oh, you hussy, Erika said. What about St. Cyr? Him? Deedee said scornfully. He hasn't got a thing, the sissy. I'll never look at him again. She turned her adoring gaze back to Martin. Ha! The latter grunted, tossing Deedee into Watt's lap. Yours. Keep her. He grinned approvingly at Erika. Strong she. Better. Both Watt and Deedee remained motionless, staring at Martin. You, he said, thrusting a finger at Deedee. You stay with him, ha? Huh? He indicated Watt. Deedee nodded in slavish adoration. You sign contract? Nod. Martin looked significantly into Watt's eyes. He extended his hand. The contract release. Erika explained upside down. Give it to him before he pulls your head off. Slowly Watt pulled the contract release from his pocket and held it out. But Martin was already shambling toward the window. Erika reached back hastily and snatched the document. That was a wonderful act, she told Nick as they reached the street. Put me down now. We can find a cab some— No act, Martin growled. Real. Till tomorrow. After that, he shrugged. But tonight, Mammoth Slayer. He attempted to climb a palm tree, changed his mind, and shambled on, carrying the now pensive Erica. But it was not until a police car drove past that Erica screamed. I'll bail you out tomorrow, Erica told Mammoth Slayer, struggling between two large patrolmen. Her words were drowned in an infuriating bellow. Thereafter, events blurred to solidify again for the irate Mammoth Slayer only when he was thrown in a cell, where he picked himself up with a threatening roar. I kill, he announced, seizing the bars. <laughs> Two in one night, said a bored voice moving away outside. Both in Bel Air, too. Think they're popped up? We couldn't get a coherent story out of either one. The bars shook. An annoyed voice from one of the bunks said to shut up, and added that there had been already enough trouble from nincompoops without—here it paused, hesitated, and uttered a shrill, sharp, piercing cry. Silence prevailed momentarily in the cell block, as Mammoth Slayer, son of the Great Hairy One, turned slowly to face Raoul St. Cyr. End of Part 2 of The Ego Machine End of The Ego Machine by Henry Cutner.